Our text is found in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. These are the words of God. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are exceedingly grateful today that you have sent us your Son. You gave us the Lord Jesus Christ so that in him we could have forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. We pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would challenge us to live distinct kingdom lives for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. We have spent the past two weeks in this Take the Land series describing and laying out our vision and mission as a new fellowship. And tonight, we're going to conclude the series, but hopefully use this as a launching pad into the future. Whenever we talk about our vision, we don't just stop talking about it and then move on. No, we always talk about it because we love it and because we genuinely want to see it come to fruition. We genuinely want to see all of this come to pass. Two weeks ago, we launched this vision with the basic idea being that Christians are called to take the land. Christians are called to take the land. We are called to disciple nations, and disciple nations we must do. We must preach the gospel, baptize people, and then teach them to obey Christ. All of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. That's our shorthand message for what it means to take the land. Our task is to equip people to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. That's our task. That's, that's why we exist. That's what we're here for. To equip people to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. We get to stand on the wall as watchmen and warn the people. Jesus Christ is Lord and you must come to him. You must submit to his lordship. We want to exhort people to come along quietly and bow before this king to unclench their fists and trust this good king. So that was two weeks ago. Last week, we, to use an analogy, we poured the concrete, right? We laid out, we made the footers, we poured the concrete. And this week, um, we will build the walls and basically finish the roof. Our message from last Sunday was kingdom strategies. And in that message, we answered the question, how are Christians to take the land? How are Christians to take the land? How should we do it? What are our strategic battle plans? Um, what are we supposed to do? What, how, do how do we make this happen? How do we execute this, this thing? To switch metaphors, what exactly are the blueprints for the house? If it is true that we are called to take the land and Christianize it, making it a social order that complies with the standards of the kingdom of God, and indeed this is true, how do we accomplish this? What are some of the things we should be thinking about so we can execute the general's war plans? We answered those questions um, by looking at Christ's sovereign government last week, 
And then we, we looked at how underneath his sovereign government, we find the four God-instituted spheres of government that stem from his authority. So Christ, Christ's government and authority is, is sort of up here. And then below that, he has given four spheres. We call them sphere sovereignty. Um, God has granted underneath Christ's authority, his kingship, his lordship, these spheres of institutions. Think about them maybe in those terms. And they are self-government, family government, church government, and self-government. So all, you know, typically we, when we think of government, we just think of the feds and DC and all this stuff. And that isn't inherently wrong, but that's not the best place to start. The most foundational is, is self-government. So we have self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. Each sphere has its proper authority, jurisdiction, calling, and uniqueness. They do overlap to some degree, but they never get mixed up in terms of their goals, purposes, and God-appointed objectives. To sort of recap that whole thing, um, the basic idea of self-government, which again is the most foundation, foundational of all governments, is that we must govern ourselves first. In terms of God's law word, each of us must be disciplined, instructed, and educated in God's law word, and we must be governed by it. We must submit by the power of the Holy Spirit to the word of God, which means that as a community here at Cross and Crown, we must emphasize things like private judgment, which simply means that your life, your doctrine, and your conscience, all of those things, must be bound by Scripture alone as the final standard of truth. So your, your position on baptism must be shaped by the Bible, not me or, or any other preacher for that matter. Also within this realm, this sphere of self-government, is, for example, your individual purpose in the kingdom of God. Each of you has the calling upon your life to cultivate your corner of the garden world. This goes for our children as well. They too, they are to cultivate their corner of the garden world. You are to use your gifts, talents, and so on to expand this garden. Um, we are theological entrepreneurs. We're, we're, uh, our spirit of entrepreneurship is, is driven by God's kingdom. So, you, so you're to use your gifts, use your entrepreneurial skills, and so on and so forth, knowing that in this garden world, some, some, will, um, some will till, some will pull the weeds, right? No one wants that job, but somebody has to pull the weeds, and others will be trimming the bushes, and yet some will be out on their riding lawnmower having a good time. So that was self, that's self-government, th those types of things. The other, another government, another sphere is family government. So regarding family government, we must restore this institution in our society. And the only way we do that is by binding our families to the word of God and governing them by the word of God. We need fathers who are godly men and women, wives who are godly women. We need children, listen up kids, we need children who are given a Christian education and who are obedient to their parents. We need families to be organized the way God says they should be organized, not the way the world wishes to organize them, which 
incidentally, as a side note, the world does not have a plan for this because while Satan is their is the unbeliever's daddy, he is a terrible father, and and he is only bent on destroying what God has designed. Regarding the sphere of church government, it is important to have elders who know that the point of their eldership isn't to get people to submit to them. Again, regarding church government, it is important to have elders and pastors and leaders and so on who know that the point of their eldership, the point of their leadership, isn't to get people to submit to them. So many churches run their little institutions like a bunch of Marxists, and we need to know that that's the wrong way to go about it. Crossing Crown Church exists to equip people to press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. Crossing Crown Church does not exist for itself, nor does it exist for the sake of the pastor. So my job here is to shepherd, to lead, and guide, but but my job isn't for all of you to think that somehow I'm above you and that you're just all you're supposed to do is just submit to you know what I say. You know, I'm up in this seated position of authority. You know, you can't know anything about that, those types of things. We're we're not Romanists, okay? And we're certainly not the Masons. So so know this. Your authority is the Lord Jesus Christ and his law word, not me. Your authority is the Lord Jesus Christ and his law word, not me. I'm here to help. Absolutely. Elders and pastors, though, are a means to an end, not the end themselves. Also within this realm of church government is the fact that we are the body of Christ. We are a small section, a, 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 a portion, if you will, of the body of Christ. But that doesn't mean we aren't the body of Christ. We are. Which means that we have brothers and sisters and other fellowships and churches who we want to support and love and serve and encourage. We want to partner with others with other fellowships, other, other churches and assemblies, knowing that in our discerning cooperation, notice I said discerning, our discerning partnership, we are working together for the kingdom of God. That is, after all, what we are to be doing. In other words, our job isn't to build our little kingdom, but rather use our fellowship as a means for the greater kingdom of God. What we want to do here is build a culture that is founded upon the social order of the kingdom of God. That, that's what we are attempting to do. We are building something that will rival and supersede the social order you find all around you. The final sphere we talked about last week is the sphere of civil government. The Bible teaches that God has given this sphere for one task and one task only— to punish the guilty who violate the law of God and honor those who obey it. That's it. That's all it is. And and a lot of people think, well, the Bible's unclear on this. We're not sure what to think about it. But the reality is the Bible is abundantly clear on it. That's That's the role of the civil magistrate. The government's job, the magistrate's job, is not to get tangled up in excessive taxation, education, and healthcare and things like that. The Bible binds the jurisdiction and institution of the civil magistrate and does so quite clearly. So, as a prophetic witness, our job as the people of God, the church universal, 
Our job is to rebuke those in authority when the occasion calls for it and teach them too to obey Christ. So we are Nathan and the magistrate is David. And sometimes you have to grab his attention. And, and so the, the church's prophetic witness means that we sometimes have to roll up our sleeves and help offer a corrective. All of these fears, when properly governed by Christ, as revealed in Scripture, give us a beautiful social order that rivals and supersedes the crumbling social order you see on television. All of these fears, when they're properly within their biblical jurisdictions and bounds, and they're governed by Christ as revealed in the Bible, when all of those spheres are doing that, it gives us a beautiful social order that rivals and supersedes the crumbling social order you see on TV. So that's our strategy. Okay, that that is our strategy, what we're trying to do. So if we are to take the land, then we have to have both swords and hammers. We must build things and tear things down. We must rebuke and we must exhort and instruct. We must deconstruct and we must reconstruct. That's our strategy. That is how we must take the land. But what about all that makes us unique? Aren't all churches doing the same thing? Isn't that what's normal in evangelicalism? Isn't this type of stuff what, what normally happens? Why in the world is Cross and Crown taking this approach? Why is this unique? Why is this different? Why do we even need to start another church? Aren't there you know, churches on every corner? Why do we need one more? Those are great questions, and I'd like to take some time to answer them. Our text in Mark 1 is very clear. Jesus Christ came to bring the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came to bring the kingdom of God. We are not sitting here hand-wringing, waiting for the kingdom to come. The consequence of his kingdom-bringing agenda is that Christians are to live distinct lives shaped by the kingdom of God. That's our service theme on the front of your bulletin. The consequence of his kingdom-bringing agenda, of Jesus' kingdom-bringing agenda there, as we see in Mark 1, is that Christians are to live distinct lives shaped by the kingdom of God. Christians are to live distinct lives shaped by the kingdom of God. If Jesus Christ brought the kingdom, and he repeatedly said that he did, then the fallout, the repercussion of this for Christ's followers is that they must live distinct lives shaped, informed, enlightened, and built by the kingdom of God. So so that's what we want to look at today. What makes cross and crown distinct? What are our kingdom distinctives? If you go to crosscrownchurch.com, you can scroll over the About tab and click on the We Are C&C link, and you'll find all of this information I'm covering tonight. That. It's all there on the website. I'm obviously going to tease it out some more, but it's there, the general, the gist of it. This is extremely helpful to study several times over. So if someone asks you about our fellowship, you can you can be informed and explain it to them. Or worst case scenario, you can tell them where to go to learn about it, and, and the site will explain it um, for you. Anyhow, all of these distinctives we list there on the site are meant to give people a taste of how we see things playing out. How how do we see things playing out? Think of all of these distinctives 
as being the uniquely held convictions that not only explain our philosophy, but also explain how, how we see this social order playing out. So, it, great, we're supposed to take the land. Great, these are the ideological, you know, strat- strategic plans. These are the spheres of government. We understand a little bit about each government. Okay, but give me more. Color it in, maybe. That's the black and white. You know, give, give me some crayons here and color me the picture. So, th- these distinctives, you could call them the markers. They're the crayons. They're the things that bring it to life. They're the things that kind of give you those convictions to see how the philosophy kind of plays out. So so think of the distinctives as the subtle assumptions and explicit goals of the strategy. So with that said, I'd like to take some time and walk through those with you this evening. The first distinctive is our belief in a very big gospel. Our belief in a very big gospel. What do we mean when we say that here at Cross and Crown we believe in a, quote, big gospel, end quote? What do we mean by that? What we want to practice and teach is the fact that the gospel message cannot be reduced to our going to heaven when we die. The gospel message cannot and ought not to be reduced to our going to heaven when we die. It is not less than this, don't get me wrong, but it is certainly more than this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as typically understood by various evangelicals, is usually reduced, truncated, to Jesus dying on the cross for my sins so I can go to heaven. That's typically how how it's reduced. What's the gospel? Well, Jesus died for my sins and I go to heaven. That is absolutely one aspect, one piece of the pie, the piece of the gospel message pie, but that's not all of it. What we want to emphasize here is the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Don't miss that. It's not, we want to associate with this good news, the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus does here in our text in Mark chapter 1. It is, it's the gospel of the kingdom of God. And, and why do we say that? Because here in our text, again, that's how Jesus frames it. That's, that's what he's assuming. The kingdom of God is a hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The good news of Christ's coming, his dying, his rising, and his ascension to the throne is the entrance of the kingdom of God into the world. That's the means by which the kingdom has come. The, um, the good news of Christ's coming, his dying on a Roman cross, his rising from the tomb, his ascension to the throne is, that is the entrance of the kingdom of God into the world. It's not simply about, you know, individuals going to heaven, though we do believe in that. It's also about Jesus Christ coming to get the nations and implementing his kingdom rule and reign in all the world. So that's what we mean by a big gospel. It's bigger in scope than what normally is taught in American churches. We are convinced that Jesus Christ, living, dying, rising, and his ascension to the right hand of the throne, uh, to the Father's right hand in the throne room of God, that's all the gospel. That is all of the gospel. And that kingdom message, that kingdom um, announcement, continues to play out as the church advances to take the land. Our next distinctive is our belief that the Great Commission will be successful. 
we have the audacity to believe that the great commission of Jesus Christ will be successful. We here at Cross and Crown teach an optimistic eschatology. Eschatology is the word, it, you know, it means last things. Typically, it's talking about, you know, how does the end of the world play out, things like that. But it's not just about last things. It's about present things as well. How does the kingdom of God manifest itself in history? We believe in an optimistic eschatology, an optimistic view of the history um, of man and, and God's sovereignty over history. And, of course, that plays out in, in the end when eternity is commenced as well. But So listen, we're optimists here, which means that we don't think that the world is a sinking ship. It's not going to hell in a handbasket. We don't look at the world and think, man, look where this world is going. It, look how bad it is. We don't say, look what this world is coming to. We say, look at the king who has come to this world. He has come to redeem it, to rescue it. He bought it back with his blood, and he intends to implement his kingdom in the world, in time, and in space, and in history. We are not pessimists. We do not believe that when Jesus Christ told his followers to disciple the nations, to baptize them and to teach them, right? We, we don't believe that he expected to send them on a mission that would ultimately fail. We believe that the nations will be discipled before, prior to Christ's return. We believe that the nations will be discipled prior to Christ's return. Jesus does not come to earth again to a planet in disarray. Rather, he comes to a planet discipled. Jesus Christ does not come to the earth again to, in his second coming to a planet in disarray. He comes to a planet that's been discipled. Because we have the Holy Spirit, and because Jesus promised to build his church, we know that the gates of hell shall not prevail. We're not trying to just snatch a few souls from the flames because the flames are so large that we're all about to perish. No, our aim is global dominion. We believe Jesus meant what he said and that the Bible means what it teaches. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So that means we have to ask the question, how wet is the ocean? How wet is the ocean? It is soaked. It's saturated. It's drenched. It's steeped in water. That's what this planet will someday look like, drenched with Christ's kingdom reign. The third distinctive here at Cross and Crown is our belief in comprehensive Christianity. Comprehensive Christianity. Comprehensive being the adjective, Christianity being the noun. The fact that there is no such thing as neutrality is part of our philosophy. There is no neutrality. Either people and institutions are for Christ or they are against him. There is no middle ground, no gray area. Which means that as Cornelius Van Til has taught us, quote, the Bible is authoritative over everything of which it speaks and it speaks of everything, end quote. Christianity is a comprehensive worldview. Christianity is a comprehensive worldview. It is a social order that is meant to consume everyone and everything. That's what we mean by comprehensive. So, in other words, no realm is off the table. No realm is off the table. There's not a place 
or an institution or an idea or something that the kingdom of God has nothing to say about it. Christianity engulfs everything. Jesus Christ's kingdom engulfs all places, all times, all peoples, all cultures, all institutions, and all geographies. We will apply the Bible and all principles derived from the Bible to all areas of life. That's our aim. Business, culture, education, welfare, local government, national politics, state sovereignty, so on, economics, taxation, and so on. And listen, lest you fall into the fallacious trap that most Christians fall into, these things are not distractions from the gospel message. They are not distractions. It is not a distraction from the gospel to have a proper biblical view of civil justice. It is a necessary consequence of truly understanding the gospel. I'll say that again. It is not a distraction from the gospel to have a proper biblical view of civil justice. It is a necessary consequence of truly understanding the gospel. So many people say things like, just preach the gospel, all the while failing to realize that that very day they might not have actually preached the gospel at all. They might have changed a diaper and maybe they even paid the bills because that's super spiritual, right? No one just preaches the gospel. And that's because that's not our only purpose for being here. We are to do other things as a consequence of understanding, preaching, and applying the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, in short, since we believe all of the Bible and since we seek to apply all of, all of the Bible, we have a fully orbed worldview that has something to say about everything. That is comprehensive Christianity. And all of that works together as we live as faithful servants of God in the kingdom of God. The next distinctive of crossing crown is our belief that God's law is the abiding standard God's law is the abiding standard. We recognize the timeless and transcendent law of God as seen in Scripture, which never changes. God's law is immutable, and inside those spheres, uh, the separate spheres that I mentioned, God's law applies in different ways. For example, the civil magistrate is not God's agent of welfare. That belongs to individuals, families, and churches, not the, not the civil government. The civil government is not authorized to be in charge of welfare. The church, think of the church's fear, is not God's agent of executing justice. The institutional church is not God's agent for, um, or, uh, for uh, executing justice. Now, there are Christians who can be civil magistrates, and that's then their job. They are now inside of that sphere, and that's their responsibility. But it's not, it's not the institutional church's job to carry out God's justice in the world in terms of punishing evil. Another example is, is the family is not God's agent for ecclesiastical sanctions. That belongs um, to the institutional church. So God's law is good. God's law is righteous and pure. And, and here at Cross and Crown, we love the law of God. We love the law of God. We, we love to talk about it. We love to try and understand it. We love to try and apply it to ourselves, to our families, to our churches, and to the world. There are so many people 
who have such ill feelings toward the law of God, you would literally have to rip out the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119, to get rid of our uh, the need, our disposition, which should be, you know, how we love God's law. David is consumed by it. Oh, how it's my meditation day and night. And yet most Christians have an aversion to the law of God. You see, the law of God is our tool of dominion. It's our apparatus for managing, governing, and flourishing ourselves, our families, our churches, and our societies. Jesus told his disciples to teach the nations his law, and so we take him seriously. This also means, specifically regarding the sphere of the state, that there are laws, statutes, principles, and penalties that ought to be carried out by the civil magistrate. Now, those laws and penalties that are tied to the shadow of God's redemptive work that were specific to the nation-state of Israel and her land are not to be seen as valid today. Things like seed laws, land laws, and things tied to the temple and, and Leviticus, the Levitical priesthood. So don't go home and read Leviticus and think, oh, I gotta, I gotta apply all of this now. Well, some of it we're not meant to apply anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. However, those things that are common in all nations, that are the general equity of the laws in the Old Testament, the moral civil laws, right? They ought to be applied today. So we want to be actively advocating for that because we love justice. One final word on this part. We are not natural law advocates. We are not natural law advocates. The Bible is clear and we are to implement what it says. We are not humanists who believe in a detached, undefined law that hangs out there in the universe apart from Christ's authority. We believe the Bible and all the Bible. So, as Christians, we must love the law of God. We also believe, and here's our next distinctive, in a long-term outlook. What we are doing here is planting seeds for future generations. We know that for the Great Commission to be successful, we must bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So what we do now affects what happens later. So we diligently, we acknowledge that and we diligently plan for that. So our goal is to see our kids and grandkids uh, a part of this flourishing covenant community who are all actively engaged in various uh, spheres, various realms, using their gifts. So that's the long-term outlook. The next one kind of goes with that. The next distinctive, we also believe that everyone is on board. Everyone is a theologian. Every, don't let that scare you. Everyone is a theologian. Now, some may be terrible theologians, but that doesn't make them not a theologian. Everyone is a theologian, and everyone is involved here. Everyone has a part. You may not be a lieutenant, but you may be the chef. You, your rank may be private first class. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you're a sergeant or so on. You may even become, you know, a general under Christ's sovereign, you know, um, lordship. But one thing is for sure. This is a fellowship, a covenant community, and we are all to, one, live out our God-given purposes, and two, do it together. Another distinctive as we seek to live as kingdom citizens, and this one kind of plays off the, the previous one, we believe in an engaged community. We believe in an engaged community. Everyone is on board, yes, but everyone is engaged in it. 
We are tacticians. That's what you are. Even you, even you kids. We are tacticians. We each have our gifts and we need them to be utilized. Men encouraging men, women encouraging women. We want to be engaged here and out there. Our last distinctive that we hold closely is our unity and charity on the sacraments. Our unity and charity on the sacraments. So many churches divide over the issue of baptism and the Lord's Supper. There are many churches where I would not be allowed to take communion for my position on baptism. We here at Cross and Crown will not make this an issue of division, but rather an opportunity for edification. Elders might believe that infants should be baptized, while some elders may not, and we're okay with that. So you may not agree with a particular baptism position, that's okay. That's all right. We we still love you and want you to be a part of this fellowship. We We won't be making that decision for you. That is left to individual consciences that are bound by Scripture. And as far as the church, you know, we'll have the opportunity to talk about it, to debate it charitably, and then we'll move on our on with our lives. But make no mistake, someone is wrong on the issue. Someone's wrong on this debate. Um, but thankfully, not so wrong that they're going to hell. So let's keep it charitable. So those are our distinctives. Those are the things that we believe that serve as the underpinnings of our mission. Um, These have been carefully curated and drafted so as to make sure that we are entirely clear for the future. And prepare for the future, we must. Why should we prepare? Why have the distinctives? Don't those just divide? Don't those just create an unnecessary hurdle? Uh, isn't that just you holding tightly to things that are like your little pet doctrines and you don't, you know, you don't want to open up to other people who might think differently than you? Aren't you just intolerant? I mean, you kind of see where this argument goes. Now, we must prepare. And here's, we're doing this in such a way so we are prepared. But why do we need to prepare? Well, here's why. We live in an addled culture that does not know if two plus two equals four. We're not sure anymore. No one is sure which bathroom to use anymore, and since everyone's confused, the only hope is to just be patient and tolerant until we reach our evolutionary self-consciousness, right? That uh, once you know our self-consciousness is kind of played out and naturalistic evolution takes over, everything is good to go. That that's the addled culture we live in. But we are Christians. We are Christians. And we must insist on what Christ wants. Jesus Christ did not put us in a desultory religion, a desultory religion, meaning that he he didn't have a plan. He's just trying to figure it out as we go. That's where naturalistic evolution gets you. That's where political progressivism gets you. It gives you moral relativism, which begets confusion, which begets stupidity. Jesus didn't do any of that. That wasn't his plan. He didn't, you know, he didn't send his disciples out and tell them, hey, go do stuff, figure it out as you go, you know, let the evolutionary process take its toll and you'll be fine. No, he gave us the blueprint of his word to implement in all areas of life. And how that's carried out matters for the mission. How that's carried out matters. What we don't need is more milk in the church. Not that there isn't a place for milk. There is but we need meat 
too. And that's, that's where all of this comes into play. If we're going to defeat humanism, and defeat humanism we must, we have to have meat. We have to have substance. We cannot have church attenders disengaged and constantly begging for more milk. We are called to move on to maturity. That's what the Hebrews 5 passage that was read earlier is all about. We are called to learn, mature, grow, and then teach others to do the same. That same thing for you children. We are called to learn, mature, grow, and then teach others to do the same. But we'll never get there if we make ourselves irrelevant. We'll never get there if we don't have a comprehensive Christianity with a big gospel vision for the future. We just won't. We will drift off into the sea of irrelevancy, and then we'll look around at each other wondering how in the world we got there. What we must do is cling to Jesus Christ. And by clinging to him, I don't mean just having an emotional attachment to him. We're not pietists. We have a big gospel that includes an empty tomb. And that means that if we are to take the land, we have to actually use this to our advantage. We have an empty tomb. There, you, there is a place in this world where Jesus Christ, who used to be dead, is no longer there because he's alive. We want to defeat humanism. We want to disciple our nation and teach it how to obey Christ. But if we're going to do it, we have to stop with the same old, same old churchy stuff. You, you cannot petition the civil magistrate to obey Christ, which Psalm 2 requires him to do, if all you do each week in church is think that the point is just to think about the gospel. Like, that's the only takeaway. Just, I know you're having a struggle with anxiety. Just think about the gospel this week. You'll be fine. We are called to be doers of the word, not ponderers of the word. We are called to be doers of the word, James chapter 1, not ponderers of the word only. Evangelicalism is the milky way. Everything is dumbed down so that it means nothing. American Christians think that the only thing we need is an emotional high from time to time and we're good to go. That's what passes in churches today. Just this emotional, supercharged high, and you know we get that once in a while, and then we're good to go. We watch the lights, we watch the lasers, we see the cover music, and we hear a message that is, is just awe-inspiring, and it makes us feel good in the moment, and then Monday comes and we're you know cursing up a storm. But this type of view is short-sighted. This type of view is incredibly short-sighted. The gospel isn't for you to feel good about yourself. It's for you to know that Christ loves you and Christ has called you to feel good about him. And not just feel, but obey him. This is where so many people get tripped up. Well, you know, all this talk about social action and getting involved in the world, that sounds like you're majoring on the minors. You're supposed to just stick to the gospel. Do you see why this is problematic? Do you see why the church has been disengaged? Do you see why the culture around us is bent on its own lusts? Sticking to the gospel has been reduced to people sitting around thinking about heaven instead of knowing Christ to the degree to the degree that you actually obey him in all areas of life. We are not majoring on the minors. We are taking the majors and teasing them outward because everything, every single issue you can come up with is connected in some way to the kingdom of God. That's what people will say sometimes. 
you're just majoring on the minors. You know, all those things, taxation, welfare, education, all the, uh, those are just minor things. Why do you have to make those such a big deal? Well, we're, we're not, actually. In one sense, we don't believe in any minors. Everything's major because it's about Christ and his kingdom. And his kingdom has something to say about everything. That's how big his kingdom is. Which means, friends, that we have a big task and we can't afford to just put it on cruise control. We have to get to work. The thing Jesus said about building one's house on the rock, don't forget that it says the word building. He didn't say to think about building on the rock. He said to build your life on the rock. And so build we must. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we delight in your glory as revealed to us in your Son. We thank you for the gift of your mercy, for the kindness you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. We ask now, Father, that our hearing of the word would lead to us um, doing the word. We know that unless you work that miracle in our hearts, that these words will fall on deaf ears. So we ask that by your grace, you would use this fellowship, this assembly of saints here to impact the world around us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.